Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of Innovation Deciphered. With me today is Hugh Gullick of the National Oceanography Centre. Correct. Welcome, Hugh. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks. Thank, thank you for having me. Uh, so, yeah, I look after, um, uh, at the National Oceanography Centre, I look after our interface with, with industry. So my official title is Associate Director for Knock Innovation. But effectively what that really means is kind of two hats. Working with industry based on the, the science and the research that we do and helping industry uh, use that sort of fundamental science. Um, and then the other element is uh, sort of projecting 10, 15 years into the future and thinking about really what, what humanity's challenges and problems may be. And then kind of coming right back to the here and now and, and looking at what we're doing um, from an ocean sciences perspective and seeing if I can take that IP, that kind of entrepreneurial spirit, the stuff that we're doing, and, and see how that could be used in the future for the, for the benefit of humanity, which is awfully philosophical, um, but it really is, it really is that, that broad. So that's my, that's my role. It's sitting in that innovation science space. And that's why we've asked you on the podcast, because <laughs> we're obviously all about innovation and innovation yep. management. So tell me a little bit more about the sorts of ranges of sciences and bits of engineering that the NOC involves itself with. Sure. No. So we, um, uh, so we cover pretty much every type of uh, ocean science discipline from understanding coastal ocean science right through to deep deep ocean and we've got the capability to kind of go anywhere in the world um, so we, we we undertake everything from uh, sort of ocean physics climatic processes uh, deep sea ecology geological processes all these types of scientific disciplines but in the ocean environment um, all over the world and that and that's fundamentally really really important for how we exist on land because the ocean uh, it touches every single person's life. You know, we, you often think about it when you go down to the beach or coastal communities, but the reality is the ocean dictates how we live uh, everywhere on, on Earth, from um, climate change, you know, uh, the oxygen that we breathe, all these things fundamentally come back to the ocean, the weather that we experience as well. So our role as a centre is principally to understand the ocean environment and provide that understanding, that knowledge, to society, so for public benefit, uh, to inform policy and regulation about how we interact with the ocean, to help industry and, and those organisations that operate in the ocean environment. Um, so our, our scope is absolutely huge and we do that through having uh, core uh, sort of scientific infrastructure on land but we also have a fleet of equipment that we use at sea. Some of that is traditional research, uh, large research vessels. Um, which people will probably be familiar with, right through to uh, completely autonomous, unmanned, effectively sub submarines. So all this equipment effectively gathers data from the ocean environment. We bring that data back, we scientifically interpret that, and then we can understand our ocean environment better. Uh, give me an idea. How many staff have you got? How many vessels have you got? Yeah, no, so we've got, uh, so we've got two uh, Royal Research ships, uh, so there are three that exist in the UK, we manage two of those. Uh, so they are based, uh, when at home, in our site in Southampton, we've also got a site in Liverpool uh, as well. So they're principally our three sites, ships, Southampton, Liverpool. <clears throat> Within that we've got a total of around 680 staff, 
and the, the, the broad split is um, about 60 to 70 percent science and engineering and the remaining sort of 30-ish percent support staff in direct function. So we're heavily weighted towards the kind of STEM disciplines and, and those, those technical roles are typically uh, research roles and that, that's a key difference between an institute or an organisation like ours and a kind of normal engineering business. You know, we, we don't have shareholders, you know, we don't, we don't have to make profit, we're a charitable organisation that works on um, getting research funding. So we can dedicate our time to fundamentally doing scientific and engineering research. So we sit in that space. Now, our viewers are really interested in exactly that stuff, which mm -hmm. is engineering, science, doing yeah. research. Presumably you've got an arc and masses and masses of projects. How, 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 does, how, how do you control all that? What's the process for coming up with a project and then managing it through yeah it's 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 a really interesting uh, concept and i wouldn't say that we've got it right because i don't think there is a right um so if you look at our funding uh, about 90 percent of our funding comes from uh scientists and engineers applying to research uh, bodies effectively and that might be a uk government research body it might be a european one european space agency whatever that is um, and, and they do so, uh, and, and that could be a, a, you know, a project that lasts anything from six months to three years. If they win that funding, that then effectively gives them the mandate to then go and undertake their research. So you're right, we have a huge number of different projects on a huge range of subjects being researched at any one point. The sort of back office management of that, uh, it, there's not, I mean, ultimately there's nothing particularly intellectual about it. Um, so we have uh, we have a very strong uh, legal and governance process. Firstly, for deciding what we bid to research uh, on, um, but then when we start doing that research, what we do with the intellectual property that is being developed, and this can be intellectual property from real kind of early idea stuff, much higher up the sort of technology readiness level, um, near what you would see in the normal sort of commercial engineering world. Um, so we manage that sort of IP portfolio uh, in terms of uh, a sort of gated process. So trying to track everything from uh, IP generation, traditional invention disclosure, um, whether that needs IP protection of some form, patenting or whatever that is, um, right through to a point where we can make an assessment of whether that could be useful outside our organisation or actually it's so obscure and niche that it, it's very interesting but it doesn't necessarily have an application beyond scientific research. So that's a multidisciplinary team that do that, involves um, sort of business development, commercial type people, uh, legal and governance uh, and finance. They're principally the three areas and they work very, very closely with the scientists through that whole sort of research journey. So it's quite labour intensive, um, it's quite technical, you know, even the support staff have to have a degree of scientific understanding. Um, and then we use outside help when we need to, you know, if we need specific help with um, IP law, for example, will go outside for, for, for that type of help. Um, that's all managed through, you know, software system, IP software systems and technology transfer software systems. So I'm just intrigued about, so the ideas for research projects come from the outside world, is that right? Where someone's saying we've got some money to do this, give us a pitch. Yeah, so, so typically what you would see is um, that the outside world... Uh, would would say we we want to understand x better 
in the ocean environment or we have a problem here in the ocean environment and we need to understand how to overcome that. So they tend to throw a question out there with funding behind it and then you would bid pitch um, to, uh, to that funding body to say well we're going to undertake this, this research project and that will answer this problem or this question that you have. So it's sort of we're answering questions that are set by funding bodies. Yeah. So in that, those, that, I mean, that's interesting. And presumably, are you doing that in competition? Have you yeah. got rival organisations? Yeah. So if you look at look at the NOC, we're one of probably five centres like ourselves globally, um, with the sort of size and horsepower to do what we do. So in that sense, yes, there are sort of natural direct competitors. Excuse me. Um, and then other competitors would be universities who ha perhaps have certain expertise in this particular area of ocean science. So yes, it's a competitive landscape in simple terms. So I'm actually intrigued about that because I mean, I, my background is business development and doing things like that. So presumably then you, when you're making a competitive bid, mm -hmm. it's, it's some sort of technical sales the quality part of the bid and then there's money yeah so when you win or when you don't win do, yeah. do, you, do you when you break down why you haven't won is it always the money or is it someone's got more firepower in a particular engineering or science discipline no i think this is this is the nuance to the normal commercial sort of way of operating in that business development space a lot of the the questions that have the funding behind them have a set budget so it's it's often not almost about the money um there's you're your proposals are usually um, uh, judged by a, a, r a range of people on a panel um, and you do get feedback on that. So it's quite hard to generalize, but if I was sort of backed into a corner, I would say actually it's probably not about the, the cost of money. It's more about um, sort of slightly different scientific expertise that was more favored by the panel in one particular area. So it's that space typically where the, the real competition is. That's very interesting. Mm. Very interesting. Now, just going back to you, pitch for these research projects. Yeah. And then you were also talking about IP generation. So, yeah. is this IP that's not owned by the funder that you've generated? Yeah. How, how do you work that out? Because yeah. That sounds like a minefield. It, it, it can be a minefield. So, diff different funding organizations have different rules on the creation of IP. I who owns it and any limitations on what you can do with it most funding bodies um, they allow you to own the IP that you generate um, and they they don't really put many limitations on what you can do with that IP and and the fundamental reason for that is ultimately a lot of the funding bodies it is it, public money that's behind it so they they want they want the information and the IP that you create to be shared. Uh, they don't want to sort of squirrel that away themselves in some you know back office government department. So it, it works on a very open and transparent principle. Uh, so typically, once we've done our research, we would publish academic papers off the back of that. They would be freely available. They might go into journals, but ultimately they they're, they're readable by by anyone. Um, but the the rights to the IP uh, that has developed that are typically typically ours yeah that's interesting that is interesting well it's it's a bit like having a almost like a treasure trove of all this kind of technical engineering scientific stuff and you 
you sort of you got to be careful what you wish for because you sort of open up this treasure trove and look into all this IP and you you can be a little bit overwhelmed. So you know what, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with this? A, how do I make sense of it? Um, and, and B, where where is it potentially relevant? You know, in the I don't know offshore energy world or or so or you know ports and harbors in that industry, and and the skill set that's required to match you know this bit of IP here which is fundamental science to you know smart ports or decarbonization in the northeast of England you know that's quite a niche business development skill set to be able to to do that and I think that that that's a real kind of innovative space doing that at pace and doing that at scale to achieve impact from the fundamental research is really what separates out, you know, really great organisations in this space to others. Let's explore that a bit more. So I mean, in my mind's eye, I'm seeing you've got this massive hopper of IP that you've already developed. Yeah. Plus there's stuff going into it all the time. Yeah. And somehow you've got to unpick that. And is, well, the first thing I suppose you've got to say, have you got to protect it in some way? Then you've got to, but before that, I suppose you've got to say, so is it worth spending the money protecting it? So, is there, what's the potential for commercialization yeah. or benefit to the community? Yeah. And this must be quite a complicated it, thing. It, it, it is. I mean, you know, I, my simple mind or view of it is, you know, how do you know which horse to back, which is the right one that's going to win in terms of the, the IP? I think that the way, the way that we approach it is, um, we try and get involved early on in the development of the IP and we try and find, even at that sort of almost idea stage, we try and whittle down ultimately where this could be used outside of, of our organisation and the research that we do. And, and by doing that early on, you can often identify perhaps uh, uh, potential industry partners who, who may, who may want to be involved in the research or, or actually they want to be involved, uh, you know, after, when it reaches a certain point. So, so getting early involvement in in this whole process from business development perspective is really, really important. Trying to sort of understand where this has applicability and almost lining up your your sort of ducks um, early on. That's that's absolutely essential. The the IP protection piece, um, I think you can probably over intellectualize it. I, I think often gut instinct. Is the thing to go with here, um, but it's it, so it's more of a timing thing. So you know when if we want protection and we know that we need protection, you know when in that whole IP development process. Because I think a lot of people typically go quick, quick slap a patent on it, spend a huge amount of money trying to do all that kind of uh, prior art due diligence really on early on, but they've not really thought about well to what end am I protecting this IP? So timing for IP protection is the really crucial bit and, and always being able to answer the question around to what end do I want to protect this? Like what, what's my end goal? And actually does it need does it need protection? Um, so so yeah that is quite a tricky process. And what's the end output of the business development function? So you've sifted through, you've segmented yeah. all your IP, you've protected it where you need to and then you want it exploited and presumably monetized in some yeah. way. So what does that bit look like? So, I mean, there's, there's two fundamental goals from this, this IP. The, the, the first one is to create impact. And that's quite fluffy. I appreciate that. But, you know, we don't exist to make loads of money. We're not a commercial organization. We want to see our science used outside of a research context for the benefit of humanity and, and creating sort of global impact where we can. 
Um, and the second element, of course, is to generate income because that income just goes back into funding our research. So it's this sort of virtuous circle. So that end bit, um, typically, I mean, we've got quite a good reputation. So we do get we do get a lot of people approaching us who've worked with us before, um, interested in certain areas of IP with a view to effectively licensing that, like a normal kind of technology licensing. So we certainly do that. Um, other other pieces we do is we'll take the IP or the expertise around that particular IP, and we will we will do ad hoc consultancy for for certain organisations, and then really the third element, which is probably the the most intensive, but but ultimately most exciting, is really to say where could we almost go it alone? So you know we're not set up as an organisation to start being a normal business and trading in that way, but but actually what what if we did? What if we had something that was so good we didn't want to license it because that diva almost not extracting as much value as we can from it? What if we, what if we set up a spin out or we set up our, a new legal entity and we, you know, we created a business that was based on core IP that we'd already created? So that's the space that we're in now with certain technology and specifically around some of this sort of autonomous, submersible technology that we've developed. We'll come on to that uh, slightly later on. That's been a really fascinating insight into what you do day to day mm -hmm. and the work of the NOC. Now, when uh, I think you were talking to Ashlyn, who's the director, producer and editor of this podcast, you mentioned that you have a vehicle called Boaty McBoatface. Indeed, yeah. Can you just tell us a little bit about Boaty? Sure. So, um, some people might have, have heard of, of Boaty McBoatface. Uh, so... I'll sort of start with where we are now and almost go back actually. So a boat in a boat face is a um, two and a half meter long, completely autonomous, i.e. no one in it or no one controlling it with a remote control, um, underwater submarine uh, that can go all, all over the world down to depths of 6,000 meters. And the, pr the primary purpose of that is to, to pack it full of different sensors and really clever kit and go and understand different things about the ocean. So it's, it's effectively a taxi, right? And then you pack it full of really cool scientific kit. So that is what Boating McBoatface is, bright yellow thing with Boaty written on the side. Literally a yellow submarine. Literally a yellow submarine, indeed. Um, the, 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 the name of that was, uh, was something uh, that went out to public vote for uh, our Polar Explorer vessel. And uh, we ended up adopting it uh, because the, the Polar Explorer vessel was called Sir David Attenborough, something different. Quite right. So we, so we took the Boating McBoatface name and we, we've adopted that. Yeah. So this vehicle <laughs> goes down to 6,000 metres. Yeah. That's pretty deep. Yeah. And it, it goes all over the world and it, it presumably you can swap out the, the sensors and the experimentations that it does. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the way that it typically works is... Uh, you're absolutely right. You, you you decide what data or or variables about the ocean you want to understand in a particular area. You would then build a a sensor fit or payload um, to go and capture that data. You would integrate that into the vehicle, and then you do various testing, calibration, etc. And then effectively, you've got two options for going to capture that data. You either take the Boaty on a research vessel, launch it over the side and, and off it goes, or you can launch it from a beach, so shore launched. 
um, and it'll swim off and go and collect that data and, and swim back. So all of that sort of pre-mission planning and everything is all done on land, sort of inloaded into the machine, um, and then it uses some clever engineering and navigation once it's down doing its thing um, to, to go and collect this data. And then we use, um, we use a, a sort of remote control system when we need to to give it, give it directions when possible. But you know, the, the obvious thing about operating underwater is it's really hard to communicate. Um, so there's some options about how we... So this thing's untethered? Completely untethered, yeah. yeah. Just tell me, I mean, 6,000 metres is a long way down. When yeah. you're down at that depth, that's 600 bar, 600 times the atmosphere, if yeah, I remember roughly. by uh, yeah, roughly. university physics. I mean, surely that vehicle must have been through some massive amounts of testing. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the story of Boaty is a, is a really, really interesting one, and I'll, I'll just sort of summarise it because it does answer this question. But you know, the development of this type of equipment started way back in the early 80s, but it wasn't until sort of 1996, 1997 that the first version of this sort of went into the water. Um, so, you know, in, in one sense, you could say it's been you know, 40 years worth of testing to get to the point of what we've got now. And clearly technology develops in that time as well, but you're absolutely right. So the, the typical sort of development regime would be um, design the sensor fit that you want to put in. Uh, you'd load all that on land. We've got onshore testing capabilities um, in-house so we can put it in some water, ballast it, make sure everything's working. Um, before you go and throw it into the middle of an ocean in a you know in a storm you, you, because it's expensive kit, we would typically um, do some uh, inland water testing uh, in deep water. So we tend to use Loch Ness, it's a great site, really secluded, uh, nice and deep, uh, and it's safe. You know, ultimately, if something goes wrong, there's always the potential. Uh, uh, there find there is uh, uh, the amount of times I've been asked <laughs> that. Um, so we typically go and do a test regime up there, put it through its paces. Then we take it out to sea, but kind of near shore, um, somewhere off the coast of the UK typically, again in a kind of controlled environment, do a whole, a whole host of sea trial testing. And it's only at that point really that we would then go and use it for the mission that it's been developed for. Um, so that, that seems quite slim, but you've got to remember that there's you know, 40 years almost of engineering behind that. So the design architecture we're, we're, you know, we're pretty confident about. So what we're really testing in that process I just went through is the integration of, of, of upgrades to navigational systems and comms, but the new sensor fit that we put inside it. And I suppose the big difference between this vehicle and a manned submarine yeah. is that, is it a pressure vessel in quite the same way as a manned one? I mean, it doesn't have to be support life does it no it, it doesn't have to support life um so that the, the basic architecture is um that the, the brains and the battery is inside a, a pressure vessel um, and that sits in the middle of the vehicle the front and the back is flooded so you, you can put sensors in there and things there's like no that there's no difference in pressure but, so, but there's no difference in pressure on those flooded areas so yeah it's, it works on that concept um, but you're absolutely right, it doesn't need to support life, so you know you don't need to carry oxygen, for example. You can shut things down to conserve power, you can go slower, or you can, you can do similar things you do with, with humans in, but fundamentally, you know, if this thing gets lost, okay, you've lost a lot of money in the scientific data, but, but that's it. Now, I mean, the, 
this is very topical because as we, we record this, it's just a week after the tragedy in the Atlantic when uh, that, I suppose the best way to call it is research vehicle Titan was lost, which is that uh, science stroke uh, tourist mm -hmm. vehicle developed by Oceangate. I'm not asking you to comment too much on that itself, other than the difference between that and boating at boat faces. There was five people needed to survive in there. Yeah. It wasn't going down six thousand meters. It didn't quite make it to four thousand, did it? So yeah. the contrast is boating at boat faces. The culmination of forty years of development. Yeah, it it, it is, and and uh, you know the the. The ultimate uses of you know comparing those two vehicles are completely are completely different, and the level of risk, of course, is is completely completely different. So, you know, I'm not I'm not aware of the full testing regime with that, and I'm sure there'll be an investigation that goes on. I, obviously, I can't sort of comment until that that point. But but they are fundamentally engineered very very differently, um, and you know you've got to remember we're a research organisation with 55. PhD level engineers developing our kits so we 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 have a lot of confidence in that that's not to say there's not confidence in other vessels that exist out there um, but but we're in that we're in that position so it's it's fundamentally a different ask of the engineering and I think that that presents very different challenges we've come to the end of our time it's been really fascinating and I thank you very much for appearing on this episode of innovation deciphered thank you for having thank me. you thank you